From the Psych Hub Podcast Network, you're listening to You Ask, We Answer. Hi, and welcome to the You Ask, We Answer podcast. I'm Marjorie Morrison, your host, and I'm also the CEO and co-founder of Psych Hub. In this podcast, I ask the most common mental health questions searched online, and I get them answered by world-renowned experts. This podcast is a co-production between Psych Hub and the Columbia University Department of Psychiatry and is made possible by HCA Healthcare. If you'd like to submit a question or topic, please do so by emailing us at podcasts at psychhub.com. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to You Ask, We Answer. We're going to have an amazing, amazing episode today. We're going to really dig into binge eating and binge eating disorder, which falls under the umbrella of eating disorders like anorexia, like bulimia. But we're really going to lean into this one because it can be confusing, right? How do we know if we have a binge eating disorder? What actually is it? And is it the fact that like Saturday night, I ate French fries at one in the morning, um, ate an entire plate of them, and I did the same thing the following Saturday night and swore I would never do it again. And then I did it again. So does that mean that I'm a binge eater? Probably, but we're going to really learn from the expert and we're going to understand more and then understand treatments for it and when to know when to seek treatment. So I'm excited because you get to meet another amazing leading expert into this space. Dr. Devlin is professor of psychiatry at Columbia University Medical Center and a staff member of the Eating Disorders Research Unit at New York State Psychiatric Institute. He served on the American Psychiatric Association Practice Guideline Work Group on Eating Disorders, is an active member of the Academy for Eating Disorders, and is a past president of that organization. Please welcome Dr. Devlin to the show. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. Just kind of to start what is the difference between binge eating and overeating? Right. So that's a great question because when the whole idea came up that binge eating disorder might even be a psychiatric diagnosis, that was, I think, very much a question on the minds of the people who were on the DSM work group of the time, because I think most people sometimes overeat. That doesn't seem like such an unusual thing. And overeating alone one would imagine wouldn't qualify as a psychi- psychiatric disorder. So what's really characteristic of binge eating as opposed to overeating is a loss of control. And so that that really binge eating refers to eating in a way that a person feels like they can't control what they're eating or how much they're eating or just really can't stop. And in talking with people with binge eating disorder, which is one of the early things that that we did when we were trying to understand more about this new diagnosis, people often would say that they had uh, struggled with other kinds of uh, problems like alcohol problems or drug problems or whatever. And this was like that, that it really felt like that level of loss of control. So that's really the distinction. And then that's also for binge eating disorder, it needs to be accompanied by other features like a real distress about the eating. Because again, some people might feel like, well, I, you know, I ate a little more ice cream than I intended to. I guess that was a little bit out of control. But people saying, no, this is, they're very distressed about it, eating until they're really uncomfortably full or eating when they're not even hungry or feeling very ashamed, hiding the evidence, that kind of thing. And when those kinds of criteria are invoked, 
it's a much smaller percentage of people that actually would meet the bar for this binge eating disorder. Well, it's fascinating to listen to this because it sounds a lot like, as you mentioned, alcoholism or some of these other substance uses where you're pretending or hiding and, you know, there's some real loss of control. Are people that have binge eating disorders, is it something that they are dealing with every single solitary day? Does it come in waves? It tends to come in waves. Um, Binge eating disorder is sort of a classic remitting and relapsing disorder. So what will happen typically for people with binge eating disorder is to go in cycles of out of control periods of a lot of binging and then pulling it together and being in periods of um, dieting, maybe oftentimes over control, maybe unsustainable over control, and then losing it again and going back to binge eating. It's actually interestingly been a problem in binge eating disorder clinical trials where oftentimes if these are just short-term studies, whether people are getting, let's say, an active medication or placebo, the success rates at being able to kind of suppress the binge eating for a period of time are pretty high. Typically, the active drug works better than the placebo, but the placebo works really well too, leading to this kind of idea that, well, anything works for binge eating disorder, but that's maybe true in the short term. It's not true in the long term. Um, It's so interesting because when you just think about the word binge eating, I mean, just binge alone is something that makes you think of something that, you know, binging on, which is uh, not always the same. And I'm trying to even think about what other types of disorder that that's similar to, because people that tend to have some of, you know, a disorders issue, um, it's more prevalent all the time. Is that right? Uh, I mean, there there is some comorbidity between binging disorder and other uh, kinds of substance use disorders. And there are some similarities. The big difference, of course, is that you need food. Mm -hmm. You can't quit food. Or, you know, if you do that, then you have you might be getting into a different eating disorder. There's been a lot, a lot of research interest in overlaps between addictive disorders and eating disorders, especially binge eating disorder. And I think that, you know, there, there are similarities. I don't, I'm not sure most people would go so far as to say that binge eating disorder is an addictive disorder, but there are definitely, you know, ways in which reward systems are involved that are at least in some way overlapping. That's fascinating. How does someone stop binge eating. Yeah, now that's interesting. And it sort of gets into, so just the last thing about the addiction is that these days, the kinds of foods that people tend to binge on are not necessarily whole foods, but these processed foods that are very high sugar, very high fat, they don't exist in nature, but they they interact with our reward systems in very powerful ways. So it's almost like taking food and kind of turning it into a drug. Wow. What's an example? Oh, I don't know, like candy bars or potato chips or like, you know, things like that that are very fatty, very salty, very sweet. So then how does one stop it? So part of it is getting out of that cycle that I described before of where you're having like these out of control binge periods and then super dieting periods. Or oftentimes, even when people are in these out of control periods, they might wake up every day saying like, today I'm going to be perfect. And of course, that falls apart typically very quickly. And then the whole day is out of control. And then again, it's like, I have to be, I have to really clamp down now. And then it goes out of control. So that's also true for bulimia nervosa, this alteration between being too strict and then being losing control. And so a lot of it is to recognize that and to try to develop 
dietary restraint, rather than having this kind of strict, unrealistic restraint, to have a kind of moderate, flexible restraint. So that the, the way back from binge eating for most people is to, after getting into the habit of self-monitoring, that's a huge step, is to just write down everything that you eat, including the binges. People, when they're self-monitoring, tend to want to kind of write down all the meals that they felt good about, and then we'll just write like, binge, you know, but it's, it's, it's important to actually write down how that happened to what you ate, because that then, you know, that you and the person that you're working with can can look at that together and really work on that together. But the eating pattern that we tend to encourage is a kind of a three meals a day and, you know, a couple of snacks so that you have a planned meal or snack every three or four hours. The image that we often use is like you were crossing a stream on stepping stones that you're walking through the day. Every time you're having a meal, the next one is not that far away. And I always um, like to describe it as generous planning and strict adherence to the plan. So that you plan, you know, it doesn't all have to be like super healthy foods. It's good to have some pleasurable foods too. There are certain foods for some people that at least early on in treatment and maybe for a while are kind of trigger foods. Like somebody might say, I just cannot go near chocolate ice cream. I will binge on it. And so for that person, maybe, okay, maybe it's a good idea to avoid chocolate ice cream for now. Ultimately, we want to have that person regain the ability to have that food in a moderate amount in a safe situation and not end up binging on it. But that could take a while. So it's that flexible, moderate restraint, that regular eating pattern and avoiding the deprivation. And then, of course, also coming to recognize some of the other kinds of things that might lead into a binge episode. It's not all about hunger. It might be also be about certain kinds of emotional or situational triggers and helping the person to recognize those and maybe develop some other kinds of coping strategies for those. This is just so interesting to me because when I think about a substance use or alcohol or drugs and abstinence is the preferred method of recovery in it. And yet for this, to your point, yeah. you know, yeah. it's, and that's why I, yeah. I love where you're going about this. The, uh, the overall goal or the, is to have it in moderation and not to bring this back to myself, but I'm sitting here listening to you thinking, okay, so I'm pretty good about being a healthy eater, but where I think I'm, I'm wondering if, if you could find this with other people is I could sometimes get stuck on this with exercise where I feel like I have to exercise every day and I'll go through a phase where I'm like really, really, really good. And then maybe not as good. And I just, I'm wondering as we try to think about for people who are trying to figure out, do I have an issue with binge eating or am I just overeating? Is it a sign where, okay, I'll give you an example of where I'm going with this is I use my watch, right? So I have my my rings. So to me, I know I have to close my rings. I'm pretty compulsive about it. And if I don't, I beat myself up. But that to me feels healthy. I don't know if that's what I'm selling myself. But are there things that people, signs that you tell people, this is when you know this is you've reached a time where you should go get help as opposed to you can manage this on your own? Yeah. I guess, so if we want to go with the exercise example, it, it kind of could be when it be, we start to, as eating disorder folks, worry about exercise when it's feeling driven and compulsive and it's interfering with other kinds of activities or it's being like if somebody were to tell me I injured my ankle and it's kind of sore, but I'm still running on it because I just have to keep doing that running. Or if it's 
I was supposed to get together with my friends, but I didn't have a chance to do my exercise and I just did not want to go to bed without doing my exercise. So I did that instead of seeing my friends or if it has to be like every single day and you can't ever miss a day. Those are kind of warning signs for me that something like that is getting out of control. That makes sense. So it's stopping things that you would normally do for it would take precedent over anything else. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's starting to really like take its toll on your life. It's like intruding into other areas of your life in a, in an inordinate way. Do people always binge eat in private? Typically, but not always. Sometimes actually people can be a bad influence on one another. And so sometimes people can both know that they're people who might have a binging problem might actually be doing it together. But most typically, there's the amount of shame about it is such that the person would be doing it by uh, themselves. What is the difference between binge eating and bulimia? So bulimia, or bulimia nervosa is the official name for it, involves binge eating, but also some sort of compensation. So that's typically vomiting is the most common. It could also be using laxatives water pills or medications to try to compensate for eating. Or it could be what's called non-purging bulimia nervosa, which is using exercise or fasting to compensate. So where there's a little bit of an interesting distinction is between somebody who binges and fasts and somebody with binge eating disorder who might have a period of binge eating and then a period of dieting. So there it's much more of a matter of time course. If somebody binges and then they have to fast to make up for that particular binge, that's more of a non-purging bulimia nervosa pattern. Whereas somebody who goes through like days or weeks of binging and then like days or weeks of dieting, that's more of a binge eating disorder pattern. Is treatment different for bulimia or binge eating or similar? It's similar. There's been a kind of trend in recent years towards transdiagnostic understandings of and treatments for eating disorders in general. So really spanning anorexia, bulimia, and binge eating disorder, and really looking at the different dimensions of that. So there's a kind of a bodily dimension of that um, having to do with, say, somebody with anorexia, dealing with starvation. Somebody with binge eating disorder may or may not be dealing with overweight or obesity. Interesting that the diagnosis of binge eating disorder does not require overweight or obesity. You can have binge eating disorder at any weight. But there is always that kind of bodily dimension. There is a psychological dimension, which has to do with an overconcern with shape and weight. We know that people with binge eating disorder compared to people of equal weight are much more likely to be on and off of diets. Um, and again, it's not required for the diagnosis, but will tend compared to um, other people of equal shapes and sizes have more shape and weight concern. And that's definitely a criterion for bulimia nervosa too, having one's self-evaluation based largely on shape and weight. So we tend to look at those different dimensions and then a person may or may not be purging and address those. So that, that kind of regular eating plan that I described, that's gonna be true across all the eating disorders. And also addressing the kinds of concerns about shape and weight and helping the person to have a more broadly based self-esteem, that's going to extend across the eating disorders as well. So yeah, the treatments are fairly similar. Of course, with someone with bulimia nervosa, you're going to have to address the purging and also manage the medical complications of that. 
and help the person to work on what are the situations in which they purge. A good thing that can happen for bulimia nervosa is if somebody is able to tolerate a large meal and tolerate the sensation of fullness and not purge. That becomes, you know, very powerful for somebody with bulimia nervosa. Wow. It is really fascinating because there's so many different pieces to it that kind of get layered in. Is it cognitive behavioral therapy that's the most effective or is it just its own approach? So for binge eating disorder, there've been a number of treatments that have been studied, but cognitive behavior therapy is the first and foremost, as is the case for bulimia nervosa as well. For anorexia nervosa, that's a little bit off the topic, but there's a treatment called family-based treatment that's probably more the leading treatment. But yes, cognitive behavior therapy, which involves understanding the cycle that perpetuates binge eating, the alternation between the too much restraint and too little restraint, and then how that ties in with um, concerns with body shape and weight and how self-esteem can be very much tied up with shape and weight and trying to dismantle that mechanism at all the different levels. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. HCA Healthcare, a leading provider of healthcare services, is committed to improving more lives in more ways. Every day, more than 275,000 HCA healthcare colleagues work together to positively impact patients, each other, and local communities. With more than 230 behavioral health programs across a connected network of treatment centers, HCA Healthcare is in a unique position to make a difference in the lives of those with mental illness and related disorders. And it must be rewarding work for you to watch people get better over time and gain more control because my guess is, is that there's a lot of internal feeling bad and beating yourself up after. It's such a tough thing and we're so hard on ourselves as people anyways. And if people don't understand it and they don't realize that how much of this is so difficult for so many people, we all have our own issues. We all have our own baggage. And for some people that are struggling with binge eating, I would imagine that once they get through some treatment and it's something that they'll be working on for life, just like any of these issues, when you go through maybe more stressful times, you have a tendency to fall back into it. But I think it must be really cool to be able to do what you do, where you give people these life skills that really help. It definitely is. And I think part of that is to help people to reestablish a healthy relationship with food. When you develop an eating disorder, particularly a binge eating disorder or bulimia nervosa, then food becomes such a fraught kind of thing. In some ways, the binge is like, it's intensely pleasurable, but it's also really awful. There's always this awful kind of backlash from the binge. And even during it, that sense of loss of control, maybe it's gratifying in some ways, but it's also not so good in other ways. And I think there's always this knowledge of what's going to follow and it ends up creating such a problem in the person's life. And so to just be able to get back to kind of enjoying food in a, in a kind of a moderate way, sometimes people like to talk about the cliche of eat to live or live to eat and somewhat going back to the, the, I mean, we don't want people necessarily living to eat. That's like eating, eating is a great pleasure, but we don't want it to necessarily dominate somebody's existence. So maybe initially people might be going back to the kind of eat to live sort of thing, but ultimately to be able to, enjoy food in a moderate way is it, such a wonderful thing. A, a story I always remember is very early in my career, I worked with somebody with having to have bulimia nervosa 
But at the end of the treatment, she brought me these cookies and she said, these are cookies that I baked and, and they're cookies that I always used to enjoy. And for all the time that I had believe in us, I could never enjoy them. I, I knew that it would turn into a binge. It was awful. And now I can enjoy them again. So I wanted to give you some of them. And that was so oh, nice. Oh, I love that. That's really amazing. Now, my dad uh, was a psychiatrist and he always used to say that treating eating disorders was one of the hardest to do because it can be so manipulative and anorexia is really a, a tough one too. So I, and again, I think it's because of this, I would imagine, because you have to eat, you can't not eat. So it's a... Uh, it's hard. It's hard. I, I think a lot, like most people don't get it. And honestly, even a lot of mental health professionals don't yeah. get it. And that's why I, I think a, a lot of times people out in general practice kind of don't want to work with people with eating disorders. Mm -hmm. And I think to work with somebody with an eating disorder, they, the person with the eating disorder has to know that you get it and that you understand kind of how it's working for them. And of course, they understand the, some of the problems with it. That's why they're there for treatment. But it's also kind of serving a purpose for them and to kind of understand that and help them to find a different way to meet their needs is what's important. So providers need to have an element of empathy, which we find now with, oh. ev right? oh. <laughs> with yeah. everything, because without it, then that person feels misunderstood and then they have all that shame around them too. So it's interesting. You need to have that element and then the actual intervention that's more helpful. Now I'm curious as we're talking, are there cultural differences in binge eating? I would say it's pretty pervasive across cultures and socioeconomic groups. But there are broad strokes kinds of differences in how different cultures relate to different kinds of bodies. And there are cultural differences in food preferences uh, as well. But I think that in some ways the body um, image stuff looms large because at least for a lot of people with binge eating disorder, if not everybody, th there is that we talked about that kind of overemphasis on shape and weight and getting into dieting. And it, it does seem like dieting is a kind of a proximal risk factor for a lot of eating disorders that people start dieting. And then like some people, a lot of people diet, right? And then most of them don't get eating disorders, but you know, some people might have other vulnerabilities such that they sort of stumble upon this kind of eating disorder solution, whether it's getting thin and getting praise for that or discovering food as a kind of self-soothing mechanism and getting into binge eating, maybe purging and end up developing the eating disorder that way. So I think culture, can certainly play a role that way, that cultures that tend to idealize um, certain kinds of bodies more like our own <laughs> will tend to maybe be more predisposed toward people developing eating disorders. Is there like a genetic or a hereditary component to it? Yeah, there are, there's no gene for binge eating disorder, but the evidence seems to suggest that genetic factors make a person more or less vulnerable to develop an eating disorder. We're not all kind of at, a, at an equal risk mm -hmm. for eating Some of us culturally, some of us familially, some of us genetically might be at higher risk. Does there have to be weight gain or weight loss to be considered to have a binge eating disorder? Nope. People with binge eating disorder compared to other comparable people are going to tend to have more weight fluctuations, but that's not required for the diagnosis. Yeah, that's what I was curious about. I think I've probably stayed in the same five pounds for probably 20 years. So I'm not one that fluctuates, but I'm also like 
one that can feel it and I don't weigh myself either, but I can feel it and then I'll alter a little bit. So that's why I was curious if it's like, was that just the way I was my genetic makeup on it? But then there's other things like I mentioned, like I'll have periods where I'm like, I'm drinking too much. I have to like just cut back. It's been too many nights in a row or something where, so it's just interesting to me how the brain does different things. We cope, right? We're all under stress and especially with COVID. Has it gotten any worse with binge eating with COVID? Has it been pretty consistent? Yeah, no, I I definitely, there's there's an emerging literature on like, which is not at all surprising that yes, the pandemic, just like it has stressed people and that made a lot of people's stress responses worse, that it's had that effect on, I think, you know, the isolation of it and just the general angst of the pandemic has been an exacerbating factor for uh, a number of people. So for sure. And I was going to say to your earlier point that what you're describing is what I would consider like normal self-regulation, that your body feels a little bit bigger. You start to think maybe, you know, a little bit, a little bit less. I've noticed I'm drinking a lot of nights in a row. Maybe I'll start being a little bit more mindful about that. So that's what we would all do. And then it's like, for whatever reason, either some folks can't do that or it's Right. I would, I, I just, that's what I'm so curious about. If that's what happens is that it gives in some regard, there's a derived benefit or pleasure. And then from that, you're doing it more and more just like anything else, like any kind of process addictions, like gambling or those kinds of things. I just think we did an episode on this about porn and porn addiction. And I just think there's there's so many different ways when we're, and, and I mean, I can speak for myself. I mean, sometimes I just feel like there's so much stress and then, you know, how am I going to manage it? And there's healthy and there's unhealthy ways. I think we do the best that we can, but I think it's just so important that people don't make themselves, don't feel bad about themselves because of whatever their coping is that they, that they're choosing and that there's help and there's ways to get help and and you know they don't have to kind of live that way. What advice before I let you go do you have for people who are just on the fence with this and wondering if they should get help? I would say, um, yeah, for somebody who's on the fence, there's the Academy for Eating Disorders that I've been involved with. There's the National Eating Disorders Association. Those are both easily Googleable, and they have lots of good educational resources. So that might be one kind of step that one could take if you had questions about like, do I have an eating disorder to read more about it, see if you sort of fit the profile or not. Um, but I think what you just said is really key. And the most important thing, which is not to feel ashamed about it. Almost every human being, I think, has had the experience of feeling out of control about something at some right. point in their life. That's just, that's our nature. That's the way that we're wired. It's so hard for us in our culture to get away from this kind of moral understanding of it's a weakness or it's a willpower thing. And that's been such an issue, particularly with weight. Um, And it's been so destructive, I think. The people with larger bodies are treated like they're lacking in willpower or something. It's such a misunderstanding and it's so punitive and so destructive. And to get away from that and just realize that we're all wired differently. And it might be that for somebody that had been genetic, like that was, they were kind of wired for that, you know, that those particular genes, that particular wiring, this particular environment, they were kind of a setup and there's people there to help with that. Just like you'd get help for any medical illness. It's the same thing. That's really 
good, solid advice for people is that we're all on this journey. We're all doing the best that we can and to really feel okay about getting help when it's, when you, when you need it. And that's not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of strength and that help works. And, uh, you know, that we're all just on this process of life of being the best people that we can and, and trying to deal with all this stuff that comes at us. So this was really, really, I, I loved this. I felt like I just learned so much and I would have walked into this thinking I had a better understanding, but you really helped me see it in a, in a different light. And it's, it's interesting how we always think about bulimia and anorexia, but we don't really think as much about binge eating. So mm. I, I really thank you for your time. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Good talking with you. Thanks for listening to You Ask, We Answer, a co-production between PsychHub and the Columbia University Department of Psychiatry, made possible by HCA Healthcare. If you enjoyed this episode, head over to the PsychHub YouTube channel, where you can watch shorter animated video episodes of You Ask, We Answer. And don't forget to like or subscribe to the show wherever you're listening. If you'd like to submit a question or topic, please do so by emailing us at podcast at psychhub.com. The You Ask, We Answer podcast, presented by HCA Healthcare, brings you answers to the most common, intimate, real-life questions patients ask. HCA Healthcare, a leading provider of healthcare services, uses its more than 32 million annual patient encounters to advance science, improve patient care, and save lives. With 182 hospitals and approximately 2,000 sites of care, HCA Healthcare's behavioral health experts are committed to reducing mental health stigma and helping patients access the resources they need when and where they need it.